If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You can see the bones of her arm, of her leg, of her face. You can see the skull with her teeth. That was Paul Roberts giving me a guided tour of the British Museum's new Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition. Delighted that in the end the winning entry chose someone that I'd never heard of. And I guess that that ultimately must be the measure of how persuasive it was. And that was Tom Holland one of the judges of our Young Historians podcast competition. We'll broadcast the winning entries later in this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. For details of our digital formats, including price, content and availability, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Last week, the British Museum in London launched a major exhibition on the Roman cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum both of which were preserved by the devastating eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. 
This exhibition is the first time for 40 years that hundreds of objects that were excavated from the ruins have travelled to London, and it may be the last exhibition of its kind ever to be held outside of Italy. A couple of days before the exhibition opened, I took a tour of it with curator Paul Roberts, who picked out a few objects that he felt were of particular significance. And you can see images of the items that we discuss on our website. Visit historyextra.com forward slash Pompeii podcast for that. So, Paul, we're here at the new Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition. And um, just for our listeners who may not know too much about uh, what Pompeii and Herculaneum were or are, could you just please briefly give us a rundown? Absolutely, Rob. Well, Pompeii and Herculaneum were two of the cities, the biggest of the cities, that were buried in a a catastrophic eruption of the volcano Mount Vesuvius in AD 79. And they were buried under metres and metres of ash and stones and rubble. And people died, lots of people, about 2,000 people died that we know of. Okay, so when when did um, Pompeii and Herculaneum first get discovered? Um, They were first discovered in the 18th century, in 1709. A man was digging a well, and he hit the theatre of Herculaneum. And then Herculaneum started to be excavated. It was so deeply buried that they had to dig tunnels to get to the buildings and to the statues and the marble. In Pompeii, uh, it was discovered about 40 years later, and that was much less deeply buried Uh, only uh, 20 feet, 22 feet. So they started to shovel away the stones and they laid open to the skies these beautiful ruins. And Pompeii, as a result, began to be more popular than Herculaneum. And so could you just tell me quickly, how did this exhibition come about? I've always wanted to put on an exhibition about the cities, but a lot of exhibitions have already been done. And so I didn't want to do the standard Pompeii exhibition, so I've included Pompeii's sister, Herculaneum, who's smaller but just as interesting. And also, um, instead of looking at the whole city, so the gladiators and the baths and the forum, which are fascinating, but they've been done, and they've been done very well, we concentrated our efforts on the home, on domestic life, looking at what ordinary people do with their ordinary domestic spaces. And I remember you telling me in an earlier conversation that they could never put on an exhibition like this again. Why would that be? Well, I think it's unlikely that some of the things that we have in our exhibition would travel again. Um, We had a special permit to bring the furniture from Herculaneum. We have, because of the way the eruption happened... Vesuvius treated the two cities in different ways. Herculaneum was buried by avalanches of material that were 400 degrees centigrade. Now, what this did was to kill people outright, but it carbonized wood. It turned furniture into charcoal. And so we've got seven pieces of furniture, Roman furniture, which people perhaps don't think of the Romans having. They think of marble and they think of bronze, but they don't think of wood. Of course, Roman houses were full of wooden furniture. So we've got seven pieces which probably wouldn't travel to another exhibition. So this really is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see these things outside of Italy. We think it's a a once-in-a-lifetime. It certainly is is impossible that this particular group of material could travel again together. Okay, so um, we're standing here at the entrance to to the exhibition. Um, 
So this is, I suppose, is this a street outside the exhibition? Absolutely. Outside the Pompeii home, sorry. Indeed, yeah, definitely. Um, Pompeian houses, houses in Pompeii and Herculaneum, open straight onto the street. So they really are intricately tied up with what was going on in the street. And in fact, the shops and the bars that line the streets in the cities were part of the houses. You would actually have a shop built into the front of your house Mm. and your slaves would run it or one of your freed slaves would take it on almost as a kind of franchise would uh, release it out from you so you'd benefit from the rents or you'd benefit from the takings either way and it's very important to see that the commerce the, the retail was everywhere in the cities there was no stigma about having living above the shop most people did so we're now on the street outside, but let's take a walk inside and have a look at some, some of the interesting exhibits we can find in the exhibition. We're now inside the Roman home, and we're looking at quite what I'd say is probably quite a famous um, fresco. I've certainly seen it a few times before of a, uh, a Roman man and a woman. Could you tell us a bit more about what this picture represents? Yes, certainly. It's, it's, it is a very famous fresco. It's the icon of our exhibition uh, here at the British Museum. And we're standing in the atrium, which is the entry area of the house it was a a public private space it was where you would allow your clients your political and economic dependents into your home so what you do is you impress them Uh, you show them your credentials for being in charge and that can be pictures of your ancestors pictures of you money silverware set on a beautiful table and here in fact we are looking at one of those we're looking at a, a portrait of the owners And they present themselves as very respectable, very well-dressed. They're looking out at us, saying, we are the owners of this house. We've arrived in Roman society. These aren't the very richest people. These are the middle classes. But they are the ones who are buying up these nice houses. And when we look at the couple, very much a couple, very close together. He's wearing his white toga with a a roll, a papyrus roll, which might be Mm. a speech. It might be a piece of literature, but the woman is the person that really grabs our attention. She's dressed in this beautiful red robe with a red mantle round her shoulders. Jewellery, hairstyle perfectly done, just come away from her slave who set her hair beautifully. And what they're holding is so important. The man holding a scroll, as I mentioned, but the woman is holding a wooden tablet, a writing tablet. And she's got the stylus that she used to write on the wax in the tablet Mm. held to her lips. She's thinking. And the important thing is that she is holding the business end of things. The wooden tablet is what you would do your accounts, where you would put your business documents. So the man might be holding a poem or a, a speech to the local senate, but she is holding the business end. And this could well be the reality. For a lot of women in Pompeii, they're not the second-class citizens that perhaps we might imagine from the Roman writers. And one thing I find fascinating about this image is so often with, with very sort of ancient history, even going back to medieval history, the only images we have are of very rich, important, powerful people. But here you have what might essentially be, I suppose, an upper-middle-class couple, maybe only a middle-class couple. Uh, absolutely. This, this is the owner of a bakery and his wife. He, he, would, he would be quite well off. A a baker was an essential part of of Roman life. You had bread and circuses. That's how you kept the people happy. So he is providing one of the main needs of the cities. But nonetheless, these are not the richest people in the city. They're people who are aspiring 
to be in that category. And they're showing they've arrived in Roman polite society. They're showing they are literate. They're showing they are cultured. They're showing they're, very importantly, they're showing they're a couple. Um, the woman is set slightly forward of the man. And what we can't see in the exhibition is that above their heads was discovered a beautiful fresco showing the little god of love, Cupid, and his lover, Psyche. So they're partners not only in business, they're partners in love as well. And another thing that I find really fascinating is, is how modern this image looks. It just, you, you can't imagine that this was created 2,000 years ago. Is, is that typical of Roman art in this period? I think it is. Uh, I think the realism of Roman art that comes through. You could see someone looking like that man or that woman walking down the main street of Naples today. Mm. Uh, And it's the humanity of them that really comes out. And Roman art took so much from Greek society and culture. There's a lot of Greek influence, but in its realism, in its ability to show true people, this is a Roman trait. So it's a, a, a nice portrait of real people who knew about Greek mythology and knew about the Greek classics, but they are Romans. Do we know what happened to them eventually? Would they have perished during the eruption of Vesuvius? We have no idea about the fate of these people. This painting was probably put on the walls in the 60s AD, so it's very possible that both were still alive at the time of the eruption. Whether they were living in the same house at the time of the eruption, whether they were in the city, or whether they were visiting friends in Naples on the day of the eruption, we can't tell. But certainly they are of an age to have been caught up in the eruption. But we don't know whether they lived or died. Let's hope they lived. We've moved one room along, and we're now inside the bedroom or the cubiculum, and we're standing outside a glass case in the middle of the room, and inside that is what appears to be some kind of basket or wooden cot. Um, So, Paul, what is this item? Well, you're exactly right. It is uh, a baby's cot. It's a baby's cradle, which still has its curved runners. It would still rock on those runners. And it's preserved because of the particular way the cities were buried. When the eruption happened, a great cloud went up into the air, full of volcanic debris and ash. And as long as it stayed up, the people were okay. But when it came down, it created massive pyroclastic flows, avalanches of hot material. And they were so hot that when they hit, for example, the city of Herculaneum, and Herculaneum is the city that's destroyed first, when these great volcanic flows hit Herculaneum, they're at about 400 degrees centigrade. Now that means people are killed instantly, their bodies are desiccated and even burnt down to the bone. But it has uh, an amazing effect on wood. It surrounds the wood, the ash covers the wood before it can ignite. It surrounds the wood and it bakes the wood into charcoal. So what we're looking at is a baby's crib, a baby's cradle, looking perfectly preserved it's just blackened but it's made of barbecue charcoal so it's immensely fragile and and do we know how common craters like this would have been in a roman home there would have been lots of them um as as we can say for most things with pompeii and herculaneum um there will have been many many examples of these all over roman italy and the roman empire But it's Pompeii and Herculaneum that have preserved them for us. And Herculaneum in particular, having the ability to preserve wooden things through carbonisation. This is the only surviving cradle, but there will have been many, many more. 
What was the Roman attitude towards children at this point in history? Well, children were little adults. They weren't specially treated particularly. They lived in the adult spaces. They slept in adult rooms. There weren't particular nurseries or anything like that. They were, they were special because they were the future. But on the other hand, um, when we look for the material evidence for children in the cities, for example, when we look for lots of toys and things, we don't find them. So they were very much little adults. They were, they were part of society. They were running throughout the house. Mm. They could wander wherever they pleased. Um, I, I think the very sad thing is when we discover um, in Pompeii and Herculaneum, we discover so many bodies of the children. They clearly were there in the cities. Where we find echoes of the children are, for example, in a beautiful wall painting, and you look down the bottom, and suddenly the children of the house have scratched graffiti all over the bottom of the wall. Animals, hunters, lions, and things like that. So they're there in the cities. Um, and the sad thing is, of course, uh, we know that they died. Many of the children died in the eruption. And I suppose it would be harder for children to get away, perhaps, than some of the adults might have been able to flee more quickly. The children would have obviously been completely dependent on the adults. If their families decided to stay in the city, they stayed. They didn't have the, the freedom of movement that the adults had. Absolutely. We've now moved along um, a couple of rooms, and we're in a small three-sided room. Which on, and on each side, we've got some amazing colourful frescoes that look like a tropical garden scene with a fountain, some birds that look like pigeons perhaps, some sleeping beauties on top of statues. What, what exactly is this, Paul? This is the garden room. This is a room that overlooked a garden terrace in a house in Pompeii called the House of the Golden Bracelet. And it's a marvellous fantasy, if you like. Somebody sitting in this room, looking out over the garden terrace, suddenly the garden comes into the room. So all around you are beautiful birds and plants and flowers and trees. And if you know your birds, you can identify every single one because they're mm. painted in such detail. And you've got man-made things as well. You've got fountains, you've got marble panels showing beautiful scenes of women reclining in the hot sun. But the whole thing is being invaded by the garden. It's, if you like, man-made meets nature. And so this would have been in a room overlooking a garden. How similar would it have been to a garden in somewhere like Pompeii or Herculaneum? Well, some of the gardens would have had this slightly wild look to them. Others would have been very, very carefully laid out with box hedges, yeah. very carefully prepared flower beds. Um, we get an idea of what the gardens would have been like from some of the archaeological excavations that have been carried out. And you can see how the flower beds were laid out, even tell sometimes which right. plants were used. But what this does is to give us... Yes, it's, it's a bit of a fantasy. I, I don't know whether many gardens would really have looked like this, but it does show us the range of plants that the Romans knew. Um, they, they knew more than these, but nonetheless, these are the main plants that the Romans would have had in their gardens. Roses and irises and lilies, oleanders, beautiful birds, magpies, um, blackbirds, pigeons, and golden orioles, which I knew nothing about until I did the exhibition. <laughs> So it, it's a lovely gardenscape which invades the room and, and the whole idea of the garden 
was to, the Romans didn't invent gardens, but they did invent the idea of bringing the garden into the center of the home. And with these rooms, and there was a fashion for these rooms in Pompeii and Herculaneum just before the eruption, the last 10 years or so, you take that a step further. You don't just bring the garden into the center of the house. You bring the garden actually into the room. So when you're sitting in this room, you're surrounded by the garden and looking out into it. So you're really immersed in this whole natural experience. Absolutely. That was the intention of the owner and the artist when they got together. They said, right, I want a room where I'll feel completely immersed in my garden. I want to bring the outside in. And that's what he got. This beautiful fantasy gardenscape, which still looks so beautiful today. You can tell it's it's been through an eruption. (laughs) Parts of it are missing. But it's still one of the loveliest series of frescoes and we are so lucky to have the whole room not just one wall but the whole thing the italian archaeological authorities allowed us to take the whole room the quality of the artwork is really impressive do we know who would have created these kind of frescoes the interesting thing is we never know the names of the artists the mosaicists the people who created the beautiful uh, polychrome mosaics sometimes signed them but sadly the wall painters never did. So we don't know who painted this. Was it a man? Was it a woman? Um, probably the painters worked as groups of decorators. Mm. The wall we're looking at is mostly, not completely, but mostly done in a technique called fresco. When you paint on fresh plaster, wet plaster, the Italian word fresco meaning fresh. Mm. And so that's why the colours have remained so vibrant, because they haven't faded. Um, but we know that therefore you had to have the plasterers and the painters working together. And sometimes you had the mosaicists working as well. So they did the whole room in one go. The side of the wall we're looking at at the moment, it's quite a peaceful, tranquil scene. But then on the top, you've got two heads, got quite scary expressions on their faces, two kind of washed out women who look like they're screaming almost. Do we know what the symbolism of that would be? Yes, very important. Uh, and uh, it's, it's nice you've pointed that out because... We could get carried away with just the garden, but we're reminded that there's another being lurking in the garden, Um, not just the birds, but the gods. And the god Bacchus uh, was the god of wine, the god of the countryside, but of course a garden is the countryside brought into the home. And so the god Bacchus and all his followers come with him into Mm. the home. And on the marble plaques, for example, we see menads. They're the followers of Bacchus. The masks that hang down, the ones that you were talking about, are actually masks of his followers, these wild women who would dance and cavort wildly through the mountains. They're shown hanging down from an imaginary colonnade. Um, You've got a, a beautiful band of architecture at the top of the painting which is completely fantastic. There's no attempt at realism. But Mm. these masks that hang down into the garden space, they're reminding us that we're looking out from a room into the garden. So if you like, the masks are hanging down from the top of the room. Um, And they do look as if they're screaming or shouting. And that reflects the other side of the menads, not just relaxing and reposing, but wild screaming, shouting and singing. So the god Bacchus is always there. I mean, I think that's quite interesting because I can't imagine nowadays that somebody would create such a peaceful scene and add this quite scary dimension to it. What, what were the Romans trying to achieve by putting that in? Reminding us that Roman art is never black and white. 
There's always shades of meaning in it. And here, we're reminded that, yes, with all this beauty, with all these lovely things, these lovely plants and trees, the gods are lurking. And we remember that the gods are so central to Roman life. We, we don't know how literally they believed in them, but they did believe that there were forces bigger than them that controlled things. And so the presence of Bacchus and his followers in the garden is very, very natural to the Romans. The birds, the plants, the trees, yes, that's what we expect mm. to find. But for the Romans, it was just as normal to have ideas, memories uh, of the gods, in particular Bacchus. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. We've now moved into the depths of the exhibition and we're in a, a quite gloomy room with a red background and on, right in front of us, under the lights, is what appears to be, what looks like a plaster cast of someone's body, someone who's either falling or perhaps hiding. But, um, Paul, what exactly is this? What we're looking at here uh, isn't actually a, a plaster cast. And uh, unlike the other uh, casts that we see in the exhibition, this is not a replica. Um, the plaster casts are too fragile to travel. And so we have replicas in the exhibition. They still very much carry the essence of the people, but they're not the real people inside. This lady, on the other hand, with her amber colour, is a real person. So this is a real, a real body, human body? This is a real human body of a person who died on that terrible day of the eruption. And she comes from a suburb of Pompeii uh, called Oplontis. 
and her body is actually visible through the cast because unlike the others she wasn't cast in plaster of paris or a similar white opaque material she was cast in epoxy resin and therefore the body is see-through you can see the bones of her arm, of her leg, of her face. You can see the skull with her teeth. And it's a rather unsettling image, but on the other hand, it does remind us that this exhibition is only possible because of this disaster. It was a terrible disaster that killed thousands of people and buried these cities. And this is one of the people. This poor woman was one of the people that died on that day. What it also tells us is the need to show these bodies the necessary respect that they are obviously part of an exhibition we can't change mm. that but what we hope to do is to exhibit them in such a way as to create the maximum respect for these people this woman lived then died on that terrible day and we have to treat her with as much respect as we can the angle that her body's arranged in is quite an unusual one. She's sort of spread on the floor. I mean, do we think, will this be the, the way that she died or has this happened afterwards? This was exactly how she was found. Um, the, what we can't show, obviously, is the pile of ash that was underneath mm. her, which gave her this particular shape. Um, what you sometimes see on the bodies in Pompeii is a contraction. You can see it partly in her legs and partly in her arms the hands begin to contract, the arms and the legs begin to flex. And this is a reaction to the temperature. Mm. Um, Herculaneum was hit by, say, 400 degrees centigrade. Pompeii was hit by only, only yeah. 300 degrees centigrade, three times the heat of a boiling kettle. Um, and the body, in temperatures that high, contracts involuntarily. Um, some people look as if they're shielding their faces from the eruption, from this great volcanic cloud that's coming towards them. But actually, it's an involuntary act. As they died, their bodies, through intense heat, the tendons contracted, and so their arms and legs flexed. It's called the boxer position because it looks like they're about to fend a punch. But in fact, it's all part of that terrible moment when they died. But it should be said... They probably didn't know very much about it. This poor woman here would have lived for virtually no time at all after the wave hit her. And, and, and does her body and other bodies like it tell us anything about the physique of Romans at this point? We always imagined that the Romans were shorter than us. Um, we, we can tell from the bodies that we find here and indeed in Herculaneum, even though they're reduced to skeletons, it's still possible to get measurements from them, that they are at least taller than the people who live in modern Naples today. So the Romans were not the short people we tend to imagine, respect to ourselves. Certainly if they walked around in the population of modern Naples, they might well be a bit taller. And do we have much idea of what the attitude towards death was in Rome at this point, in the Roman realm? We get a pretty good idea. The idea was eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow, dot, dot, dot. Seize the day, carpe diem. There is a, an amazing mosaic which we have in the exhibition, which once formed part of a, a dining room floor. And it shows a skeleton. 
Now, this would not be the first choice to put in a carpet for your dining room nowadays. But for the Romans, it was perfectly normal because in the middle of life, death is lurking. That's why it's important to make the most of life. And that's why you can joke about death by putting a skeleton in the, in the middle of your dining area. But the interesting thing is, it's death with a difference because death is coming and he looks like a skeleton and he's scary but on the other hand he's carrying two wine jugs so you're going to die but you're going to have a nice time in the process and what did the romans at this period believe would happen to you after death there was some belief in an afterlife there was uh, uh, an idea that you could go to the elysian fields that you would have some there was a, there was an idea of an afterlife, but it wasn't as clear cut and as set as, for example, the Christian view of the afterlife, where if you live your good life, if you go to Christ, then you will have this life in paradise afterwards. The Romans, therefore, um, put great emphasis on appeasing the gods, trying to um, uh, give sacrifice to the gods and try to win their support for whatever was going to happen to them after they died. So now we've um, moved away from where we found the, the dead body and we're now in a room called the Kalina or the kitchen and we're looking at a glass cabinet at what looks a bit like to me perhaps some kind of chocolate cake but I imagine it's probably not that, is it? What a wonderful idea, if only it could have been chocolate cake. Um, no, the, the thing we're looking at is uh, a loaf of bread. Uh, the thing that you needed for your day-to-day -day life was bread and this is a loaf of bread um, in traditional shape that we see in Pompeii and Herculaneum, the round loaf sectioned up into slices, about eight slices in each. And the fascinating thing is that not only the furniture was preserved by the intense heat at Herculaneum, but things like staircases, windowsills, shutters, doors, and food. And here, this loaf of bread was preserved by exactly the same process that preserved the furniture. In other words, the intense heat turned this loaf of bread into charcoal, just like it turned the furniture into charcoal. And it's a, an amazing survival. What's even more amazing about it is we can tell who made it. It's got a name stamp on it, and the name stamp gives the maker's name as Keller. And the wonderful thing is Keller means speedy in Latin. Right. So there was a slave called Speedy who was making the bread. And he could have had no way of knowing that we'd be looking at the loaf that he made nearly 2,000 years later. But it's precisely the name stamp and the fact at the very end of the name stamp, it says Keller is made by Keller, blah, blah, blah. Then the name of the uh, person who owned Keller. And then it says specifically, Sir. S-E-R, servus, slave. We can't think of servants in the ancient world. They were slaves. They were owned by their masters. So this loaf of bread not only preserves an amazing piece of everyday life in terms mm. of the food, but it reminds us that slaves were absolutely fundamental to Roman life. But we must remember that these slaves probably had a better life than freeborn men who were very poor living in the cities. As a slave, you were looked after by your master, clothed and fed. So when he made this loaf of bread, Keller was probably having a better life than some free people who were very, very poor. 
And how much do we know about the, the diet of Roman people in the first century AD? Well, we have. If we didn't have Pompeii and Herculaneum, what we would have as our reference point would be a number of authors such as uh, Varro and in particular Apicius who wrote down their recipes and these recipes, thank goodness, survived the Middle Ages. They were transcribed by the monks and written down and written down again. So we have an idea of some Roman recipes, but it's very, very clear. These are recipes for the elite. They're recipes for the very rich. Flamingos, um, wild boar in all sorts of wonderful ways. Very, very expensive herbs and spices. But what we wouldn't have without Pompeii and Herculaneum is evidence for ordinary people's diet. And from the drains of Herculaneum, from the tables of Herculaneum, we get these amazing survivals of figs and pomegranates and walnuts and peas and beans and onions on the table here with the loaf of bread. But thanks to the drain excavated in Herculaneum, we get an amazing cross-section of 750 sacks of human waste. And from that, Lots and lots of examples of foodstuffs, all the different fish remains, meat, lots of vegetable husks that survived, uh, fruit husks and, and vegetable seeds that survived in the drain. And we know that in Herculaneum, at least, there was quite a varied diet. They seem to have eaten quite well. How well could, could we analyse this bread? It, would it be possible to work out exactly what the recipe for bread like this was from what remains? We might. Uh, I, I'm not an expert in, in structure of, of wheat, but it might well be possible to determine whether this was made from wheat flour or whether it was made from, say, uh, millet. But high uh, bread that was intended for um, ordinary people or the upper classes would certainly be made of wheat. It was wheat bread that the Wormans wanted to eat. That was Paul Roberts, curator of Life and Death in Pompeii and Herculaneum, which runs at the British Museum until the 29th of September this year. Visit britishmuseum.org for more information. And if you'd like to find out more about Roman life more generally, then do check out our April issue, where Paul Roberts has written an article about what Pompeii and Herculaneum can tell us about being in a Roman home in the first century AD. That issue is on sale now, available in print and, of course, in our many digital formats. Late last year, BBC History magazine and the Historical Association launched a quest to find Britain's brightest emerging historical talents through our Young Historians podcast competition. We asked history enthusiasts aged 16 to 18 to record a three-minute mini-podcast on the subject of their history hero. We received dozens of entries of an incredibly high standard and it was only after hours of deliberating that our judging panel, historians Dan Snow, Lucy Worsley, Tom Holland, Saul David and Helen Castor, were able to narrow it down to two winners and five runners-up. The winning entry in the individual category was by 17-year-old Josh McStay, a student at William Howard School in Cumbria. Josh selected as his hero the Carlisle mayor and journalist James Steele, who he admired for his reforming zeal. Before we listen to Josh's winning entry, here is the view of Judge Lucy Worsley on the individual competition. This is a very hotly fought battle. Uh, the judges had some interesting debates and disagreements amongst themselves. We finally listened to two entries, one other and the winner. And as soon as the winner was played, everyone just went, oh, it's got to be that one. And now here is the winning entry by Josh McStay on James Steele. 
When deciding upon my history hero, I wanted to choose someone local. And after living in Cumbria all my life, it's the likes of Beatrix Potter and William Wordsworth who are the most adorned figures of local heritage. Though perhaps heroes of their field, this pairing is of limited appeal to a 17-year-old boy. But for James Steele, our forgotten historical figure, the case is quite different. Born in the final years of the 18th century, Steele made his name as a journalist. A man of humble beginnings, Steele started as a printer for the Carlisle Journal aged just 12, taking a meandering route to becoming editor in 1829. Here, he reflected the people's voice, never shying from taking on local aristocracy such as the Lowther family. He also broadened the horizons of Carlisle citizens, bringing stories such as those of Tsar Nicholas I of Russia to many a tale from the Commonwealth nations into the homes of the largely uneducated cotton workers of Carlisle. Appointed to mayor of Carlisle between 1844 and 46, Steele was an advocate for social reform. He had seen the effects of starvation firsthand in 1842, when famine swept the city to such an extent that one in four was adjudged to be suffering from starvation. For many years, the despised corn law had prevented grain from being imported from overseas, even when the people were in desperate need. Steele was at one with the people he represented in pressurising the government to repeal the law. He was also widely praised for the compassion he showed during the food shortages, his writings reflecting the desperate need. Steele also helped to lay the structure for today's city, which is why I'm now at Carlisle Citadel Station. His recognition of the value of a major rail link for trade and businesses continues its legacy even today, with Carlisle on the West Coast mainline. During his term, he also improved the water supply, building the Stony Home Waterworks on the banks of the River Eden. From streetlights to road paths to revamp in the fish market, during his two years in office, Steele moved my city a long way forward. Though it was at Carlisle Cricket Club, a place I'm very familiar with, that Steele best addressed his true concern for the health of his citizens. A world away from the cow corners and googlies of today, the high-top home baths were the first public baths in Carlisle, enabling people to wash for the affordable price of just three pence. In a city frequented by disease such as cholera, this was a vital lifeline. Steele will never be in the same category as Emily Pankhurst, Martin Luther King or Winston Churchill, but that is part of his appeal. A simple man, this politician of Whig values did not try to change his nation or the world. But James Steele spent his lifetime working to improve the lives of the 9,000 residents of his city. And born into a life without riches, Steele used the humble art of journalism to work his way up to respectability, gradually becoming an ever more important voice, both locally and in Westminster. As today's politicians and journalists bicker over the Leveson inquiry into press ethics, perhaps they too should take a look back at this prime example of how political activism and journalism can beautifully overlap. But for the Carlisle boy with a keen interest in both politics and history, there can be few more aptly described as my greatest inspiration. James Steele, 1797 to 1851, is my history hero. That was Josh McStay, the individual winner of the Young Historians podcast competition. Josh wins an Olympus L5 recorder and a year's subscription to BBC History magazine, as well as a year's corporate membership of the Historical Association for his school. Also in the individual category, the judges selected five runners-up who were James Heal, Alice Roberts, Rosemary Walmsley, Luke Griffiths and Caroline Harding, they have each won a magazine subscription and a historical association goodie bag. And here's what Judge Tom Holland thought about the individual contest. It's been a very interesting experience judging these podcasts. And one thing they certainly reflect is the staggering array of heroes that there are out there. Um, very, very impressive range. And delighted that in the end, the winning entry chose someone that I'd never heard of. And I guess that that ultimately must be the measure of how persuasive it was. Just as with the individual category, the group competition was very closely fought. 
In the end, it was three students from Silesian College in Farnborough, Oliver Reist, Richard Nash and Ben Rosselman, who triumphed with their innovative method of championing crusader Bohemond of Antioch through a spoof episode of Dragon's Den. Before we play their entry, here is what Judge Helen Castor thought about the group category and the competition as a whole. It's been fascinating here, hearing so many different voices and feeling all the energy that goes into um, historical thought um, from people who are studying it at a relatively early stage from the great age I'm looking at it now. And what was wonderful was the energy and thought that it provoked in the room. The judges, we, we had some really tough discussions, but we've come out with two worthy winners, I think. Um, one, a very personal reflection on a local hero, which was very thought-provoking and very moving. And another one that made us all laugh, but did get at something very important about the nature of medieval heroism. And now here are Oliver, Richard and Ben on Bohemond of Antioch. Hello and welcome to the Dragon's Den. My name is Evan Davies and tonight the dragons are looking for someone a bit special. Someone to lead the Crusader armies. And we must also welcome our special guest, Judge Emperor Alexius. Here comes, here comes the first budding hero. Hello dragons, my name's Peter Hermit and I'm asking for the post of leader of the Crusader armies and history hero. I would like to say that I'm a leader of men and I'm extremely charismatic. People want to follow me. I don't have a lot of military training, none in fact, but I will uphold the religious principles that we want. I'm a fanatical Catholic, I was present at Urban Speech, so I feel personally inspired, and I have a will to win. Thank you, Dragons, I will now take any questions. Peter, don't come by the tiny. Hello, Duncan. Uh, what's your business plan? What's your route? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that yet. Probably walking across mainland Europe and beyond. Oh, OK, so you're not sure? No, no. Well, uh, for that reason, I'm out. Thank you for the opportunity, Duncan. Peter, welcome, Peter. For me, I can help with your business plans. That's not a problem. But it's your passion and your drive that's what attracted me so far. So for that reason, I'm going to bring you on board. Thank you, Theo. So, Theo, how did Peter do for you? Well, Evan Davis, he had an absolute shocker. Got mastered just past Constantinople, and Alexius let him through. After left, after Alexius let him through. While his business plan seemed watertight, his passion and drive was flawed, and I should have seen through his facade, or facade. <laughs> That's what happens when you gamble sometimes, Evan. Hello, my name's Bohemian of Antioch, and I would like the position of history hero and leader of the Crusader armies. I feel I'm the ideal man for the post, as I have the largest army of all the Crusader knights, and would be best suited to reclaiming the Holy Land. My business plan is clear, unlike Peter the Hermit, in that I will travel to the Holy Land through Italy and sail to Constantinople, saving time and energy. I am wealthy, and I feel I am sure to gain land in the East. Hello, my name's Emperor Alexius from the Byzantine Empire. I'm going to tell you where I am. I want all of the land you take during the Crusades, and I'm not going to give you any of my men to aid you. Take it or get massacred by my men. OK, well... Thank you for your kind offer, but I'm going to have to refuse and storm the city until we agree that you give me protection from the other armies in return for land. Also, I find working for an orthodox Christian offensive, so I'm going to ignore your offer, dragons, and work alone for this. So, Bohemond, you refuse to swear fealty to Alexius and so have decided to lead the crusade alone. Why have you done that? 
Well, Evan Davis, uh, I have because I feel I have a strong enough army to join together the other armies and conquer the Holy Land alone, as proven by the taking of Antioch. Yes, that was very impressive. So, due to that, your religious fervour and your desire to gain land for Catholicism, we've made you our history hero. That was Oliver East, Richard Nash and Ben Rossiman. Their prize is an Olympus L5 recorder, magazine subscriptions and a year's corporate membership of the Historical Association for their college. That's all for this year's competition. It's been a fantastic event and we might well run it again, so do keep an eye on our website and the magazine itself for more details of that. Thanks again to everyone who submitted their entries. I should mention that you can hear all of the shortlisted podcasts, including these winners, on the Historical Association website, which is history.org.uk. Look for HA competitions in their resources section of the site. And that's almost all for this week. As always, let us know what you think. You can contact us on email, podcast at historyextra.com. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra, or you can check out our Facebook wall, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about Viking culture and hearing about the experiences of a family of Jewish dwarves during the Holocaust. Do join us for that. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.